Welcome back to Therapists in Motion. We're excited to have you back with us. If you're listening in order, happy 2019 to all of you. If you just found us later on, welcome. We're glad to have you and hope you enjoy. So I'm excited to bring something a little different to the table today. Uh, we are going to be starting a Google MD, Google PT series within our podcast. I know we've talked in the past about that patient that walks in, and you bring them back and they sit them down, they look you in the eyes and say, I don't know what therapy can do for me, or I don't know why I'm here. We've talked about that. We all know those patients. We all have those patients. And we all now know a day, now, know nowadays, when it comes to medical advice, Google is the place to be. Patients are coming in thinking often they're more educated than ever, sometimes being more educated than ever, sometimes adequately, and other times it's quite questionable. And the question we brought to ourselves and was asked is, you know, are you Googleable? You know, when you're prescribing an exercise program, when you're performing manual therapy, are you doing something to differentiate yourself with the treatment of obscure issues, common issues, whatever it is, from the typical findings and the first page Google findings? Are you providing a skill that is going to make you an actual resources individual? Or could your program be found in Google and just be done independently by the patient? A little disclaimer with this, the exercises we talk about, the conditions we talk about, there's a right and a wrong time for literally everything. And there's nothing wrong with any exercises you find in Google. I can promise you I could find a good reason to apply darn near every exercise. I'm sure there's something I would never want to use, but darn near every exercise that exists out there being used appropriately is, again, just are you providing a skill? Are you providing something that differentiates yourself? And are you looking at the whole picture enough to really give this patient the best care they should get from a movement specialist? Or is there something missing? And that's what we're going to talk about. Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. All right, everyone. Joining me today is the practice performance team of Daniel Mirovsky. Hello, hello. And the one Jennifer Lee. Howdy, howdy. And obviously, I'm Paul. So, adhesive capsulitis. That will be today's discussion point. I want to put a little groundwork out there just so that we're aware, because obviously people can come into your clinic in all different stages and <clears throat> challenges with pain as far as this is concerned. So for the purpose of our discussion today, this is an individual who is not in an acute phase. They're in a thawing phase or they have received a cortisone injection or other injection from their MD. They are able to, for the most part, tolerate things. Yes, it's adhesive capsulitis. I expect there to be pain, but we're not talking about the individual that comes in, you need to really work on pain modulation, just get the beginnings of range of motion started. So just keep that in mind for the patient today. With that in mind, again, that also plays back into something we talked about in the introduction. There is a time and a place for nearly everything. I'm sure there are certain things that shouldn't exist, but for the most part, we can give a good reason and rationale behind pretty much any exercise you see. So everything we're going to discuss today, everything we've seen on Google, We've used, and I've used all the things we're going to discuss in here in the clinic. I think they're perfectly fine things to use. It's just a question, again, are you going beyond this? Are you differentiating yourself? What is it that makes you not Googleable and makes you a appropriate, skilled service and a true movement specialist within the therapy realms? So launching right in, exercise number one, pendulums. What do you guys think? 
pendulums. <clears throat> I first off, I have allergies, so I'm gonna apologize for clearing my throat multiple times. Um, I do pendulums. I would not say I do them a lot with you yourself every morning to warm up. The yes, pendulums. warm up my shoulder really helps with my labral tear. Um, <laughs> um, I don't do them a lot with adhesive capsulitis. I feel like patients. A, don't typically do them the way that the doctor wants them to be done. Sometimes they actually increase pain. And some patients don't even like the traction feel of the arm kind of hanging down. Um, so just personally, I don't use them a lot. I tend to kind of gravitate to other exercises. But at the same time, I don't find them necessarily harmful. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I think it's one of the more challenging exercises to get a patient to actually perform properly because of fear, apprehension, or pain. They don't want to let the traction occur. I don't disagree with the principle of the pendulum and getting the, the, the head of the humerus distracting from the glenoid. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, um, but it's one of those that I'm probably going to give to them on the first session. And if they don't do it perfectly, but they're doing at least some sort of movement on a regular basis and trying to get the distraction, I'll give it to them on their home exercise program and move on. It makes sense. There's a capsule that's designed to keep the humerus in the joint and the capsule is inflamed and irritated. So tractioning the capsule and the humerus away from the joint could cause pain. That makes sense. <laughs> uh, Dan, I'm curious. I mean, there's some research that goes into bathing a joint. You know, we've looked at it. I joke in the clinic about how I despise long arc quads. But again, getting to the idea that there is a time and a place for everything, there is research that shows that individuals can get up in the morning, do just some simple long arc quads, and not like we're trying to get quad activation or strength going, but simply bathing the joint in snow fluid, fluid can be beneficial. Shoulder's a very shallow joint, but what are your guys' thoughts on just using a pendulum to bathe that joint? Yeah, I actually think that's a great idea. Um, and, and I use that principle, like you said, of the of the long arc quad sitting over the edge of the bed a lot with some of those osteo- earlier osteoarthritic patients specific to the knee. And I think you could apply the exact same principle in the shoulder, um, you know, just setting a timer and doing it for three, four, five minutes and not necessarily doing it as, again, I don't probably then in that situation care too much about form, but more as, you know, well, let's get the synovial fluid viscosity decreased, um, so that that joint can move a little bit more efficiently and with a little less, uh, friction and restriction within it. Yep. Um, I agree with you. I have gone through points in my career where it was absolutely not, I'm not going to do this because I don't think it does anything. And then I've had the patient that the doctor gives them the exercise and it's the one thing that gets their knee moving better or their shoulder better as they get up and start moving through the day. And if anything, that's our job to connect the, to, to connect the dots for people from how do I start to move to how do I actually functionally move and move better throughout my day. So that should be a part of what we do. I want, to, I want to tangent for a second there because I really like what you said, Jen, because I, I see this a lot where you get that doctor that gave the individual their introductory exercises right off the bat. It's a handout. It's got a lot of things we're going to talk about today. What do you do if, let's just say you really dislike these exercises, but they're not causing pain because go to the pendulum thing. Like we said, this could agitate someone. If it aggravates them, we're probably not going to get a good benefit. But mm-hmm. assuming that there's tolerable discomfort here, where do you guys like to take that? What do you tell the patient? How do you use or not use those exercises? I'm going to harken back to a podcast we did before where I kind of mentioned first day you're looking for buy-in, you're looking for trust, you're looking for them to understand that you know what you're talking about, you've done this before, and that you trust the doctor and, and understand where he or she is going with things. So 
they're coming in trusting the doctor to trust you with what's going on. So whatever the doctor has given them, you fully support it. You educate them on it. Make sure they're doing everything correctly. After a couple sessions, depending on how they're doing with things, usually a patient will open up and say, you know, this exercise really hurts. I don't like this one or I like the ones I'm doing here actually makes me feel better, more mobile. Then I'll start to kind of, okay, then we're going to just tease this one out. We're going to take this one out, put this one in. And over the course of five, six sessions, you're kind of fading out what they did that wasn't successful and you're feeding in what you're doing that's more successful, a little more functional. Yeah, I think as we move into the rest of the common Googleable exercises specific for adhesive capsulitis, um, that'll give us an opportunity and in, in for all three of us to speak a little bit more to that on when is the right time, what's the right dosage, and, and is there something that potentially could be better prescribed for this individual patient's condition rather than just the standard handout that the MD gives them. I like it. So rolling with that next exercise, wall walks. Yeah, I probably prescribe wall walks very frequently um, because of the active and, and probably more of an active assist wall walk to allow the contralateral limb to assist with with the flexion or, or scaption component. Um, I, I, I feel like that's a great opportunity for then me to get in and start working on scapular mechanics while they're doing a wall walk rather than just have them do that passively or active assistedly in my clinic, right? Like it's an opportunity for them to utilize their two hands and me to utilize my two hands. I will use wall walks, um, but the way that I think about it is you're securing the arm against something. You're going to actually activate muscles that could stiffen up scapula and surrounding joints um, so the way that I'll usually approach it is I'll start them actually swinging the arm or moving thoracic spine scapula in open chain uh, make sure that I'm getting the scapula and we're kind of getting ahead because we're going to get a little bit more into this but make sure that scapula is moving well into an upward rotated position before I would then add the wall to it and then like Dan was saying supplement that get my hands on the scapula make sure it's moving up as the arm's moving up the wall swing at shoulder height and below, swing short range, swing crazy arm flailing overhead. Where are we at? Swing and success. Paul arm swing. Inflatable <laughs> <laughs> flailing arm man. Yes. yes. Flailing arm man. Yes, absolutely. No, swing in successful ranges. And that is not necessarily flexion. That can be from an extended to a flex position. Like swing in successful. Nice. Yep. Uh, just curious. Flexion, scaption, abduction. Yes. Internal yes. rotation. I don't think See. I've seen that, but I guess you could. It's a wall walk internal rotation. I mean, you could do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it'd it's be possible. Weird, I guess. Uh, yeah, I'm just throwing it out there. I've seen it. So, Dan, yes, mm-hmm. sure. Depends all the above, mm-hmm. yeah. above. Just... yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Same. Cool. Easy. Absolutely. Like you? Um, I generally tend to stay more in sagittal plane off the start, and maybe wander a bit into scaption. Uh, the mechanics of the shoulder are pretty similar between flexion and abduction. There's just a little more stress than a number of things in abduction. So I will tend to find, again, go to your success. I find greater success with starting in that flexion and some scaption plane. Get things moving. Get scapular upper rotation improved. Get thoracic spine improved. Get other, other things improved. Then I find much better tolerance going into abduction as opposed to launching it right away where it tends to be more painful. Sometimes patients become frustrated. Like, Why isn't this getting any better here? Um, it, it helps them with the buy-in. It helps me with a little bit of uh, the pain modulation and the controls and move forward. And I've never had an issue getting the abduction if I don't do it initially, assuming I'm utilizing all the mechanics that are required for appropriate abduction. Ooh, nice, nice lead into something that we're probably going to hit later. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I have no idea what you're talking about. So the first ones we've had, you know, 
active range of motion, active assisted range of motion. Here comes our first stretch, pec stretch, and particularly pec stretch, let's just say unilateral door frame stretch, static. I believe that's what the pictures we saw most of the time. I don't think I saw yeah. any bilateral. So unilateral static <laughs> yeah. door frame stretch. Ooh. This is one that I would say a majority of patients that I can think of recently probably wouldn't even be able to get into the position, the classic position to stretch that in that way. Like if you're going to Google it and see somebody's arm up at like a 90 degree angle, there's no way that they're getting up there. So I'm, I'm often modifying that, manually kind of working the tissues first, making those changes in the tissues and the joints that are going to need to gap whenever you're getting into that motion, seeing if that is, again, a successful way to go, and then supplementing a stretch probably in more modified position uh, than up at that angle. But I see no problem with it if it's successful. Uh, I, I like what you're saying. You know, go to the success, modify the angle to make sure that the patient can be where they need to be. I mean, if we look at today's society, we have so many people that are typing on computers, sitting at a desk, utilizing iPad, iPhone, insert I, whatever you have here. So we often have that anteriorly rounded shoulder type position that can contribute massively to issues at the shoulder. Obviously, adhesive capsulitis becomes challenging what did and didn't cause it. But we all know that if you've got a forward shoulder, it's only going to challenge other mechanics and make this difficult. So I see a great benefit, especially through the pack you need to get that moving. That is going to be often tightened, painful, challenging for the individual. I just find a lot of times I either have to modify, like Jen said, or spend more manual time there doing things to get it to release, get it to be successful in some sort of static or dynamic stretch. And a lot of times I'll start with just more of the reaching with some sort of thoracic rotation component designed more for thoracic spine, but utilizing some opening up of the chest while I do it as a bit of an arm driving one motion. So that's where I try to find it. Yeah, I would say I probably don't prescribe the pec stretch for adhesive capsulitis now as I as much as I did previously. I'll probably do more like a, a modified plank on a plinth with a book opener type or a, or a you know, a right rotate, if it's the right shoulder, a right thoracic rotation, and then change the angle of their arm. So I may either, depending on physics, right, long mm -hmm. lever arm or short lever arm. So I may either have them straight mm -hmm. arm or bent arm, depending on what their tolerance is across that. Um, you know, I think that's one that docs are like, oh, we really got to stretch out the, the front of the shoulder and the back of the shoulder. And sometimes I feel like that's more of a pain provocator than a successful movement sequence, mm -hmm. at least for me. So that brings up a question that I have for you guys then. Seems like you want to feed in maybe more mid-range of motion. Not that you're not stretching the tissue. You're stretching the tissue, but you're not holding it in an in-range with those exercises. What is the benefit of doing something where you're holding it in at in-range? Is that something that you want to do versus, no, I'm going to stick more in mid-range? Well, I mean, Ellen Becker et al., probably in the mid-2000s, did the total end-range time, right? That's in the... Uh, orthopedic sections, clinical practice guidelines, you know, an OCS prep. Um, I can't necessarily say that I disagree with it, right? I think it's a tolerance thing for the patient. Um, but again, is that something that they need to do potentially under my direct care? I don't know. Um, again, I think that's all patient dependent. If I trust them to do it on their own and, and hang out at enough of an end, end range stretch, then great, go for it. Um, and I let them play with their hand position and, 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 you know, almost quote unquote self-select. Um, 
you know, and I think it goes back again to what phase they are. I know Paul alluded to early on that we're, we're kind of ignoring that acute phase because in that acute phase, you're, you're in an inflammatory causing state. So is total end range time, something you really want to do in an, in an inflammatory state. I don't know that I want to do that now in the, in the thawing phase. I don't really see any harm to it. Right. But is that something that I'm going to spend a lot of time in the clinic on? Probably not. Are you going to see me on my hands and knees on the treatment table, cranking on their shoulder and just leaning on him? Probably not. You will see that from other therapists and Mm -hmm. are they successful with that? Potentially, right? Like that's not my patient. So yeah, I mean, like you said, I, I think you have to get out of that mid range at some point. If we're never challenging the tissues to some degree, I don't know how we expect them to respond in the fashion to become improved and whatever that improvement might be. Um, I don't really talk much about total end range time with patients. I talk more about the importance of doing this very regularly. Obviously, adhesive capsulitis, I think, takes a lot of education on the patient side. Because this is one of the things where there is going to be pain. There are certain conditions where I can potentially, I expect discomfort, but I can keep it pretty tolerable. Typical true adhesive capsulitis, there's probably going to be pain with this treatment of this condition. It's just unfortunately part of the deal. It has to be tolerable, has to be doable, but I expect that to occur. But I am much more a fan of, I want you to do this a thousand times across the day, but pace yourself. The body is not going to respond well to one kick your butt time and then be done the rest of the day. It's going to do better with 25 now and 25 later, 25 after that, 20, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if I say a total end range time in one true sitting, but the overall totality of the day's worth of exercise is going to be the best way I think the patient can be successful, get the motion they want, spend some time challenging, but let the body calm back down before they get back into the challenge instead of just mm-hmm. push it past the breaking point and then expect it to recover and then do it again. Right. I think that's a great point. So I have... Another question. Please. I have a lot of questions today. Question away. <laughs> so anybody who's treated BPPV knows that they'll get a lot of different referrals that say BPPV and you evaluate the patient and it's 5% of the time actual BPPV. <laughs> In the same way, I've had this person has frozen shoulder and I start to evaluate them and certain things about their condition let me on to, I'm not so sure if this is actually frozen shoulder. Your doctor has told you it is. How do you guys handle that conversation? When do you make that decision? Is it actually frozen shoulder versus adjacent joint dysfunction, et cetera? My conversations is it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, At least that's what I try and stress to the patient. Like, you know what? You got to me. Your doctor thought it was important for you to get to me or you thought it was important for you to get to me and, and seek physical therapy interventions. My job now is to look at mechanics, whether it's, um, related to adhesive capsulitis, frozen shoulder or not, and get properly assess all of the specific components that requ- are required for efficient joint mobility of the glenohumeral joint and go from there, right? Like if mm-hmm. it's adhesive capsulitis, if it's something else, if it's joint irritation, if it's muscle irritation, at some point it doesn't really matter to me. And I think that that's something that's taken time for me to evolve over my career. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I pretty much never speak on medical diagnoses, to be honest. One, I mean, starts getting into what's our scope of practice, things of that nature. I will happily educate a patient because we all know they don't have much time with doctors. Often come in, he said, I have bursitis. What does that mean? She said, I have adhesive capsulitis. What does that mean? I will more than happily spend my time explaining the medical diagnosis, explaining what it means, showing the anatomy, showing what it is. It just helps with that patient Mm buy-in. But my education from what I'm going to do goes back to what Dan said. 
I'm interested in the movement and the mechanics. So whether they are an external impingement, an adhesive capsulitis, an internal impingement, a slap, whatever it is that shoulder, um, the pain is, the generator for the pain, my goal and my role is to say, here are the mechanics required for efficient shoulder movement. Here's what I'm going to try to restore for you. Yes, I mean, if I have a true adhesive capsulitis, it makes sense in my mind to know what, like I said, you might need to push things into some more pain, explain to the patient what can and can't be tolerated, but it still comes to success. It comes down to patient tolerance, and ultimately my goal is always adhesive cap, kind of hard to say what caused it, but everything mm-hmm. else, external impingement, why do they have impingement? Mm-hmm. Subacromial bursitis, why do they have bursitis? What is putting stress in that area? What's not doing the job? What's doing too much, et cetera, to cause the issue? That's how I treat every body part, any body part, and that's where my education primarily lies. Good questions, though, John. I like those. <laughs> so we had pec stretch. Let's mm-hmm. go the opposite direction, cross arm stretch. So bringing your arm across your body, pulling into the chest, you see many variants of this. Yes, you'll see that same variant in a sleeper stretch. Yep. I mean, I, th- I think, it get, again, it goes back to the conversation we had regarding the pec stretch is, is there an additional way that you can get it to be more successful? Um, and is that cross arm stretch going to go to something you just alluded to? Is that going to cause a secondary issue? Are they going to get, you know, secondary impingement? Are they going to get, external impingement are they going to start to irritate that inferior subacromial bursa like Mm -hmm. and so i i probably do that stretch more dynamically than passively Mm -hmm. uh or statically i guess is the better word to say so i can't necessarily say i don't do it but i probably wouldn't be one of the first seven exercises that come to my mind when i'm treating somebody with adhesive capsulitis i'm gonna I'm going to go off the end here and say I absolutely hate that one and that I would never give it. Um, and I don't give it. <laughs> but Jen, we Surprise. said a time Surprise, for everything. she has a strong opinion about something. Um, I mean, if you're giving it for the posterior part of the glenohumeral joint, I could talk through, okay, what happens? Where do you need to be when you're accessing that part of the posterior part of the joint? Your scapula needs to be in a different position. If you're going for somebody functionally needing to reach across them, they also need scapular protraction. They also need rotation to the opposite side. Um, that stretch does not incorporate those things that are more functional, and that's where my brain goes is I want to establish balanced, healthy motion throughout the entire system as opposed to cranking the crap out of the joint. So, eh, no. <laughs> so along the lines of cranking the crap out of the joint, mm-hmm. Next exercise, I'm going to kind of clump a couple of things together here. The next one we saw a lot of was dowel. Um, using a cane, a dowel, a baseball bat, a broom, whatever stick you have lying around your home to do flexion. We saw extension, uh, abduction. I'm just going to include this to you as a therapist, passive range of motion cranking. You, wh- where do you guys stand as far as utilizing a tool or yourself as the tool to get into an active assisted or a passive range of motion in, in any plane? Uh, I mean, I will use passive range of motion. Now, I'll, I'll, I'm going to make a tweak because I'm going to probably call it passive range of motion with overpressure to try and actually get them into a new range. And But while I'm doing that, I'm probably going to be also doing some sort of functional soft tissue mobilization through the axilla, through the pec, through the rotator cuff, through the um, AC joint region, through the SC joint region. I'm not just probably, you probably won't see me with an adhesive capsulitis just passively with overpressure stretching somebody. I can tell you based on experience, I don't see you passively overstretching anyone with any condition. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's probably, well, 
Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, sp- speaking to the dowel, um, I will prescribe the dowel exercises very regularly, but I tried to integrate it with some sort of lower extremity step, mm-hmm. um, you know, into the sagittal or frontal plane and try and get more of a hip and thoracic spine driver up into that glenohumeral joint rather than just having them just do pure shoulder flexion or scaption or abduction or external rotation. Try and have that be more of an integrated combined approach. Yeah. Um, Oh, I will, you know, this is one that doctors give a lot. And so patients can easily do them at home. um, And that's fine. Do it at home, especially if you feel like it's successful. I'm a big proponent of that. Um, outside of that, I tend to think more, there are other ways that we can move your body on your arm. All of the dowels are move your arm on your body and, and stress, stress the joint that way. But if you flip the script and move the body on the arm, secure their arm somewhere and have them move in a more functional position, like I've said multiple times, get the hips moving, the pelvis moving, get the thoracic spine moving in the direction that you want to complement that motion for the scapula or whatever it may be for that person. I tend to go that way in the actual session and let them do the other easier things at home. I love that. I'm a huge fan of the body on insert joint here motion than just the motion of that joint proper. I tend to find, we go back to your success, I can find a lot of, I tend, I tend to find, all right, back off. We're going to try and get you to say library. Library, yes. Library. Yes. library. Anywho, back on track here. I don't even remember what I was saying at this point any longer. You like the body But yes, I find a lot of success. Yes. I find a lot of success going that range. Like Jen said, I will still utilize a number of the things we've talked about today. If that patient come in that the doctor did give him a handout or they went to Google, I'll just get off super excited for them. That's awesome. Great. You're already working on this. You're already putting yourself one step ahead. Good job. It's only going to help you. I love what the doctor gave you to start. I'll question you. Do you have any issues, any of them, any questions? We're going to take a look at it today, make sure you feel comfortable with them. And that becomes our home exercise program. And I'm probably never going to look at it again for the duration of the time that they're in therapy. Mm-hmm. Right. Gives them something to get going, gives them something to do. I'm going to provide my skill, my specificity, my expertise, and hit all the things that I don't feel the things are hitting. The requirements mm-hmm. of the shoulder we get into, the scap mechanics that Jen's touched on, the thoracic rotation, extension, that side bend, all the coupling things that have to happen to get appropriate flexion, extension, abduction, every plane movement, the mm-hmm. clavicular movement, the AC joint, the SC joint, all those things that we know has to be able to move for that shoulder to go. We could get into liver, we can get into viscera. Mm-hmm. There's so many pieces of the equation. We could talk for a while. We could. I could keep going, but I'm going to not for the sake of time. <laughs> but it really does. I, it's funny. Mm-hmm. I find adhesive capsulitis. We talked about the, are you Googleable? Mm-hmm. I almost think this is one of the easiest ones to not be Googleable because I'd love you guys to tell me what is the best stretch out there for scapular upward rotation that a patient can do themselves. Uh, that's pretty hard. Yeah. yeah, I don't know that we're going to find that. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, I mean, you're talking, you know, accessory physiological motions. You can't control that accessory motion yourself. That You can't get the posterior tilt. At, well, if you can, I'd be impressed. But that's a hard thing to do. The scapula mm-hmm. rotation, the progressive internal rotation, the different things you need at all the joints. That's hard. This is Absolutely. almost a give me for me to get in there and manually work <clears throat> on these things, whether it's on a table, on a wall, in a cage, and whatever the... the um, region i find success for the patient i think this one almost becomes an easy way to say hey that's a hard spot to get moving let me help you let me help you find success i know we said that we were going to keep this to the tail end of the frozen slash thawing phase but paul can you just speak really quickly to when you get that patient that is in the acute phase um 
the things that you're going to look at outside of the glenohumeral joint that may be beneficial for some of our newer, younger listeners to to uh, more specifically address and look at. And then you can also we can apply those same principles to the individual that's in the tail end of the frozen slash thawing phase. That's a great question. I mean, I tend to find one one of the things I hear a lot is, well, what do I do? Everything hurts. Well, that's do the things you need to do pain modulation for them, but where can I get that I know they're going to need motion isn't going to agitate? So let's say every plane of motion of the shoulder is painful. They can't do anything. They are guarding when you do anything passive. You can't even keep them out or into the, that small range. They're just not getting it. I can probably let them hold their arm in in that sling type of position and start doing thoracic mobility. We know they're going to need thoracic mobility. We know that because there's pain, especially as much pain as we're talking about here, they are probably guarding and protected. So I can get them into working the thoracic extension, working the rotation, working the side bend without putting any stress on the shoulder. That's only going to behoove them in the long run, let them become more successful later and shave some time off of the overall episode of care without agitating the shoulder as we're trying to modulate. So I will often look sometimes as far away as the hips. And let's say I have a person whose job requires them to stand. Let's say they work at Subway and they make sandwiches all day. They're constantly rotating. If they're rotating only at the shoulder across the body, that could cause problems. Maybe their hips are stiff. Well, let's just start giving them some sort of standing, not even a reach because I don't want to actually the shoulder, but just standing rotation. It's going to get T-spine moving for them. It's going to get the hips to open up. I can find other things they can do that will help us later. And it just gives me a great chance, again, to talk about the mechanics, talk about my understanding of human movement, and get some of that patient buy-in that I want. So, yeah, I think you mentioned one of the potential big rocks of being the, the thoracic spine, but I've also seen you go after sternoclavicular joint, acromioclavicular joint. We've talked about scapula. Can you just give our listeners a really quick recap of appropriate acromioclavicular joint mechanics and what happens in the beginning and the end range and what symptoms they may see specific to those patients with adhesive capsulitis that they're struggling to get those last few degrees of range of motion back? Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at the clavicle itself, um, we know we need the posterior roll. We know we have retraction, elevation, the things that happen. But it is a little interesting when you get to the AC joint at the end range of flexion, there is an anterior moment that you're actually going to have where the AC joint, the coming is actually going to slide anterior with respect to the clavicle. And it can be that cleanup. Like Dan said, a lot of times, not a lot of times, but I've often seen where individuals get to, you know, 150, 155 degrees and they're having a hard time with that last 10% of their motion and they're just not quite getting things to work appropriately. A lot of times I tend to see it's something maybe a little bit that lateral scapula or oftentimes the clavicle and the costals aren't working. You know, the, the costals obviously are going to be required for thoracic mobility, but some of the first rib that mimics some of those clavicular components, that's a necessity to attack, but making sure you don't just think, I know what the clavicle is initially. It does change a little bit at the end range. It is a cleanup piece that can be very beneficial when the patient's like, I just, I feel like I'm right there. And you're sitting there, they're cranking themselves on your wall walk that they've been doing since day one or whatever that is with the dowel. And they're just not getting it. And they're getting really frustrated. And they don't understand why. Look at the mechanics across the body. There's typically something else you can clean up that will give them that last bit of success that they need. That was awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. I want to so, say one more thing. Please. Outside the box, as typical for me. Make sure you're asking, getting a good history of subjective on this one because I currently have a patient right now who's had frozen shoulder three times. Um, I asked her, okay, when did these happen? And all three have been moments in her life that she's had a significant trauma. 
emotional trauma, physical trauma, something, two of the three have been emotional traumas. And so right there, it kind of puts me in the mindset of this is, yes, it's a physical limitation for her, but she, this is a hugely emotional component. And that's going to kind of reframe how much success I'm going to get, the conversations I'm going to have with her when she's in therapy, if she's comfortable having them. And me, I'm comfortable having those conversations. I can feel her tissues release as she's talking to me about her traumas that she's had. So uh, you are so dead on. And we start talking about neural tags and different things that we know play a role, pain science. It is a huge piece to ask. So everybody part, but particularly things such as this that sometimes have a little more challenging to determine the onset nature of, it is so important to touch on those questions like Jen said. I mean, because there is so much more we can go into as far as how you can provide great relief just by talking, by giving them outlets, by referring them to appropriate professional if you need to. Recognizing these things is huge. We could even get into other things where have they had a mastectomy, have they had breast cancer, you know, radiation, chemo. There are so many things that play a role. Don't forget your basics, your your red flags, your precautions, your contraindication, everything you need to check through. They can play a really big and significant role, particularly on those repeat patients, repeat offenders that come back and or have had at least they tell you repeated incidences, but it's still worth it with everyone. You got to check these things out because it could be something underlying that won't ever let you get success. And the more quickly you can identify it, discuss with the appropriate referring provider or other health professionals, get them taken care of, the happier that patient's going to be. So thank you guys. It was a good one. I liked that. We had, I still feel like there's so many things I'd love to talk about on it, but for the sake of time, I think we hit some pretty good ones. So as everyone knows, if you have any questions, thoughts, concerns, please reach out to us at the Therapist in Motion at Spooner Physical Therapy. I'm sorry, SpoonerPT.com. And everyone, have an excellent day.